0: You guys could turn in your bulletin. We're going to be reading um, several different scriptures today, first from Romans and secondly from 1 Thessalonians. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again so that we be- and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus all those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. This is God's word.
1: And for those of you who have come in late, I am uh, Giorgio Hyatt. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ Central, and I've been gone, and uh, now I'm back. I've been gone for a while on sabbatical, and we thank you for that. And for those of you who also came in late, maybe inferred through the prayers or whatever, Howard and Terrence and Joel's mama died yesterday at 3.30 in the morning or so. She died uh, uh, with her husband of nearly 40-some-odd years. And the boys tried to rush home. They left about one, tried to get home, but they didn't make it in time. They didn't get to see her. And there are a thousand things to say, and there's nothing to say. Pain and suffering and grief are at hand, and there's got to be something else. Today, Pastor Howard, is supposed to stand here before you and to preach about a different kind of affliction, a different kind of, of, of suffering, uh, affliction of sexism, how to explore how the church might deal with such things and address this kind of pain as part of their mission. And that will have to wait for another day because pain and suffering and grief are at hand. And we have to look for something else. If you were here last week, which I was not privileged to be here, but I uh, was able to read Pastor Howard's manuscript. On a sermon series about suffering, how ironic. He talked about his mom, again, how ironic. And you heard a man preparing his heart for a hard road ahead and presently having a hard road. You heard him talk about his mama who has been fighting cancer for two years now and losing the battle, he even said. Five different tumors and all the treatments are taking their toll. And her life being sucked away, he said. He talked about the pictures that his dad printed out and how they looked so different than the woman wasting away before him now with her hair gone and the illness destroying her and her skin discolored and all the weight that she had lost. And he said to us, and you could hear the grief and his ache for the old days, he said to us that he wished that he could see her in the kitchen or at church worshiping or nursing as was her profession, but just not in that hospital bed. And only God knew, only God knew that that hard road was only going to last six days longer. Pain and suffering and grief are at hand. There's got to be something else. Your pastor, Howard, is no coward, and so he was not afraid to ask the hardest questions of himself. And of God in the middle of it, even in the last sermon, where he talked about the feeling of foolishness, of having hope that his mom might get better, the feelings of foolishness and fright and feeling silly when it quieted in on him and and wondering what had happened, why he felt so uncomfortable, why he sat there while death was coming, not knowing what he knows now, trying to speak hopeful words and not being sure, trying to hope, but with results that he could not produce, no magic he could spell. He asked about what the goal and the hope of the mission of suffering was, and he answered, in part, still fighting off, was it a sadistic joke? Is it a sadistic joke to suffer well? What is it? What is the good news of the mission of suffering? Y'all, Miss Brown did not get up. It was death that they were waiting for. They didn't know a miracle would not happen. They hoped and prayed that it would. She will not walk or cook or sing or rub her boys' heads again on this earth. Pain and suffering and grief are at hand, and there's got to be something else. The problem of pain and the problem of suffering, the problem of death, is not philosophical, it's experiential. People die. People ache. And yet God calls us to bend our hearts towards Him in the middle of it. That's the hard part. It's not about some other, somewhere, some person, faceless and nameless. It's about our loved ones. And our loved ones' loved ones. You see, the question, the question is not, why do people suffer? The question is, What do we do with death? What do we do with death? How do we live in it, knowing it's going to happen, knowing the touches of it are happening in our sufferings? How do we live in light of this thing? And we have a culture who is so prone to not thinking about it. We have a Christian subculture that's just as bad. The story's told of, a, of a, I don't even know where I read this, but there was a guy who was trying to talk about grief in a book I was reading, and he, he says that he picked up a Philip Yancey book called Disappointment with God. And on it was a flashy yellow or gold gilded uh, mark on it that had 15% off, and it said, um, a money-back guarantee. If for any reason you're dissatisfied with this book, return it to Zondervan Publishing House for a complete refund. You realize how ridiculous this is? We can't even be disappointed about disappointment with God, much less being disappointed with God. What presumptuousness, what silliness. We won't even risk that. We won't rest, risk 15 bucks on a book unless we can secure that we will not be disappointed. That is not life. That is fairy tale land. Because as today tells us that pain and suffering and grief are at hand, and there's got to be something else. Many of you, and I, and my family, will visit Mrs. Brown's dead body on Thursday. I don't care what kind of Pollyanna approach you have to that, that is what's going to be. That's not all that's going to be, but that is what's going to be. Dan Allender writes We either give in to the pain with a hopeless cynicism or settle for an artificial resolution that insists that things really aren't too bad and we need not muck around in all this negativity. Miss Brown's body will not be negativity. It will be reality on Thursday. And it is today. And we have to ask, is there more? And as your elder Adam talked and taught, heard about, asked you about your suffering or told you that he knows of your suffering, he knows and I know the same for you. And I want to encourage you with one thing first. And that is, the Bible is not like our world. And the Bible is not like the Christian subculture. It deals with the reality of pain. It is honest about it. It is a wonderfully human, divine book. And though it doesn't always condone all the emotions that are in him in the book, it is wonderfully realistic about depicting what's going on. Job's whole family is destroyed, and he said, "Why did I not perish at birth? Why did I not die when I came from my mother's womb?" Elijah says, take my life, Lord, kill me. Jonah says, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Judas commits suicide. Moses said, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And then there's the treasury, the book of Psalms, the beautiful book that explores all the grief of the world in it and the joy that we find there. It tells us how to hate death, how to have compassion. It teaches us how pain and suffering and grief are at hand, and it gives us words for it, and it gives us something else as well. Terrence and Kia's new baby is going to be born without a grandmother. Among us is cancer, difficult pregnancies, even more difficult miscarriages, strained family relationships, divorce, lost friendships, death, suffering, jobs lost, strokes, businesses failing. If Christianity does not have anything to say about this, then we should go home. But it does. And if I could pocket this for you and I could give it for you and I know that I'm only 30 some years old, 35 years old and I haven't lived long enough to suffer but I have made this a schooling of mine to learn how to walk in these ways. Something that I've concentrated on and lived in and tried to work through as much as I can as a pastor. Trying to walk in the ways of the suffering in the valley of the shadow of death and trying to walk along these things. These are the essential questions of Christianity. These are the essential questions of our lives. If I could put this in you and I could somehow, you know, zip drive it into your heart, I would do it. But it's not data. It's something else. And it's something we have to lean into. Because the Scripture teaches us to do two things in the face of this death that we see. Not just Mrs. Brown, but the death all about us. And that is to groan and to hope. To groan and to hope. What do you do in response? You groan in hope. The very first word, words we read today, the whole first verse, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, those who are Christians, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of our uh, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have to talk about this groaning. The Bible compels us to groan and to groan well. As our other wonderful elder alluded to, that Jesus did this very thing. He sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane. On the cross he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Lazarus right before his tomb, he saw all who were mourning there. Did he say, I told you we lived in a fallen world. Here is a result of sin. Let's make this a teaching point. Did he say, y'all just buck up, don't worry, I'm coming to bring the miracle in just a few minutes. What did he do? Fully present in the moment, fully knowing what was about to happen, he groaned, he mourned, he wept. One of the most profound, shortest verse, but one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture that our Lord and King, who was about to raise somebody from the dead, would weep beforehand. The Lord of the universe groaned. For sin and sickness and death. And that is our calling as well. We know the whole creation has been groaning as Roman 8 said. The whole creation plants groan. We groan. Not just them, but we groan. And it goes on to say that the Holy Spirit actually groans for us. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Helps us in our weakness to what? Groan. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans. He groans for us when we cannot groan well on our own. The proper response to death in the Christian world, in the in the in the, uh, in the on the earth, is to groan. And when you can't groan, beg the Spirit to groan for you and teach you to groan. We have to learn this groaning. Charlie, I didn't ask you beforehand. I didn't have time. I'm sorry, but. Charlie's aunt died, great-aunt died not too long ago, a couple years maybe, 95 or so. Aunt, grandmother, aunt, sorry. Huh? Grandmother. Sorry. And I went over to see her, and she had this great mixture of celebration of 90-some-odd years of life and frustration that she was dead. And she felt guilty for a tinge because she was like, how can I complain? She lived 95 years. And I thought, your emotions are spot on. She's not made to live for 95 years. She's made to live for eternity. We are made to not die, but to live. Yes, 95 years is a long time in our world of decay. But 95 years is a young woman in eternity's sight. And you are supposed to long for her to never die. That is right and right on. Her instincts were so much better. were wonderful and she formed her, 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 her thoughts and heart around that to still be angry with. This is why I like the word groan because groan has not just a sense of sadness but a little sense of frustration, maybe even a little anger with it. Anger that things are not the way they're supposed to be. You groan. And for you who are cynics, who have given up on groaning, who have tasted and, and tasted pain in the world and decide to not just grimace, but to smirk, if you will, have turned it inside. I give you the psalms, the psalms that form us. That say, how long, O Lord, how long? I am in anguish. Psalm 6 says, I am in anguish. I am worn out from groaning all night. I drench my bed with tears. And you cynics, you know who you are. Dealing with pain and a scowl, life stinks, and then you die, no groaning, because you always explain it with some type of this is the way the world is. Whether it's a theological argument or political philosophy, you always have it. It can never surprise you. If you're one who's thinking, uh, thinking that this is how legitimating your life, these pains and suffering, if your cynicism exists to keep you away from things, if you catch them way out here, all the pain that's coming your way, and fit it into categories so that you do not have to grieve and, w- and make your bed in tears, you may be a cynic. And I beg that you would repent and learn to groan. But it's not just the cynic, it's the apathetic as well. Those who turn their pain not into a sneer or a scowl, but into nothing. They lop the ends off their experiences and don't let anything hurt too bad. You turn it into nothing. Pain with a straight face, stoics, cutting, cutting your ability to feel out Ah, apathos is what it means, without passion, apathy. And the prayer for you is in Psalm 13, look at me and answer me, O God. Give light to my eyes or I will surely die. If your life feels like a spectator, if you're a pleasant sort, but is unwilling to deal with the hard things in your life, if you're really not very close to anyone, If you can watch the news unmoved, then you're struggling with apathy. I urge you to repent so that you might groan. Or you could be like me. I'm also those two things too. You could be heroic. You can do the hero's thing. You face pain by wanting to take the hill. And here are your words from Psalm 55. Don't ignore me, God. I am distraught. Poor has overwhelmed me, fear and trembling plagued me. If I could, I would run away. Let that form you instead of Nietzsche who says what does not kill you makes you stronger. Remember what Nietzsche also has to end up saying. God is dead. The heroic who call and say, or who, who, who offer don't cry over spilled milk, stop this complaining and these downers. The world is hard and you just need to deal with it. If you're like that, then I'd ask you to Repent and learn to groan. Use the words of the Psalm 74. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder? And then you have the optimist who deals with pain by turning lemons into lemonades. Pain with a smile. Don't worry, be happy. It is the same faithlessness, you know, of avoidance, not dealing with how hard this world is, If you don't think it's really bad, not bad. If you don't think about the poor and the abused and the broken and the dying. If you think people in caskets look beautiful, you may be struggling with optimism. And I'd ask you that you would repent and learn to groan. Because what all this does, all this learning to groan, it does is help us deal with the reality. Of our world. And the Scriptures demand that we deal with the reality of the world. Taking a hard and strong look in it. Look at it. Getting us to the point where we're almost in despair. Leaning us into it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and revolutionary, said, It is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. And he's right to shrink back from this and all this optimism and cynicism and any other ism we use, including uh, addiction, is to be living a fairy tale, sub-Christian, sub-human, and sub-alive. This happened when, uh, right after I preached my mother-in-law's funeral. A great man whom I respect greatly a incredible leader in the community has done more for uh, pregnant moms than any uh, single pregnant moms and uh, than any person probably in the country. Was at the funeral, and he said to me after we were sitting there and we're getting ready to get in the cars and and, and go to the actual gravesite. He said, "You know, I've been thinking, death is good," and I thought to myself this is probably not appropriate, but I want to strangle you right now. He says it's kind of a doorway because that's the only way we come to Jesus. And I thought, I really may strangle you. Death may be good for you in about ten seconds. No, (laughs) death is not good. Death is Christ's last enemy. You don't come to Jesus because you die. You come to Jesus because he died. You live because he died. It is a stingless thing when the resurrection happens. Death is, yes, a necessary road bump, but a bad road bump. What we would prefer is that he not die. We would not die, just come on back and we just go to glory. Death is not something to make peace with. Jesus is someone to make peace with to deal with death. Death is your enemy. It is not your friend, nor is disease or destruction or anything. Yes, Miss Brown, in a state now, is being comforted by the Father in heaven. And that is glorious and true. But we don't thank death for it. We thank Jesus for it. Because the next thing we need to do is not just groan, but hope. Hope is the central reality of the Christian life. There is no accident that this, and I mean this in the most sovereign God sense of the way, there is no accident that this has come right in the midst of the mission sermon series because the mission of God's people is to hope in God's redemption. That is what we're to do. What should we do? We should believe upon the Lord Jesus, Jesus says. It is a battle axe of glory in the hand of God. Hope does violence to sin and destruction. Hope gives us courage not just in what we can do by our collective efforts, frankly, and I love the guy there is no audacity in that hope. Well, somebody got it. <laughs> the audacity of hope is hoping in the one. The one who can actually change what happens can alter the state of life and universe. Hope. Listen, y'all. Hope's good. Does lots of things. The scriptures are filled with it. If we hope, we do not... It says in 24, For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what is already has? 25. But if we hope for what we do not ha- yet have, we wait for it patiently. Remember, we're not in control of the outcomes. 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hear the hope there. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or let's keep going or cancer or car accident or stroke or pneumonia or a raging lunatic with a gun or a knife or an army? Nothing. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, goodness sake, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, the present or the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation, will be able to separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The rest of the Psalms that we were reading before and I was giving you before, here's the second halves of them. The Psalm 6, The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. Psalm 10, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Psalm 13, But I trust your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord, for He has been good to me. 42, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. 55, Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Hope, my friends, is what will make us make meals for the Browns. Hope is what will drive us down to Charleston. Hope is what will keep us engaged in each other's grief and their grief when they return. Hope is what will make us fight injustice in the world. Hope is what frees us to enter into tragedies in the world. Hope is what frees our frees us to tell our neighbors about this resurrection power that is Jesus' the love and sacrifice for the world. And what do we hope for? I want to be as very specific as I can, as very as as, 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 as clear as possible for you, because this is the crux of Christianity. We don't hope just in his comfort. We don't hope just in his ability to come alongside and create a community around the Browns so they can eat and not have to worry too much and love on them really well. Those are beautiful things, and those are born out of the hope that we have. We hope in the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, if the resurrection of the dead does not occur, that we should be pitied among all people. Fools, we can quit and go home. If the resurrection of the dead does not occur, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are to be pitied among all people. This is ludicrous. Unless Miss Brown comes out of a historic Charleston graveyard, it is not worth it. We're fools. Unless that dirt comes open, it is not worth it. And so we look to what the scripture is called here as the firstborn. Or the first, uh, 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 what's the scripture say? The first. um, Things just might help me if I'm losing it. Definitely for those of predestined comfort and likeness. (laughs) The firstborn among many brothers in the resurrection. He's coming, and we enter in his train, in his robe. We follow him. The banner over us who come to him is this resurrection power, this love that will not let us go. Love that has strength and power to do what we long for most of all, and that is to actually raise our bodies from the dead. I know we live in, a, in, a, in this world that, that, that with, with laughs at such a thing, and I know you can put me back in the optimistic stuff and all that other stuff, but I tell you that if this doesn't exist and this is not true, I'm done. This is what I do this for. This is what we do this for, is that Jesus will raise people from the dead. Lazarus died again. The people he comforted with diseases died again. Unless there is a day when he raises all from the dead and restores all things to himself, we're fools, but we're not. The creeds that we've read, the songs that we've sung, the things that he said, the scriptures have taught us that it is not the the case. That In fact, he does rise from the dead. Not just died for us, but much more, it says, rose from the dead. Rose from the dead. He rose from the dead so that we might be uh, be raised in his train. The central reality is that Jesus is Lord and he has conquered death. That is the Christian creed, that he is Lord and he has conquered death. And you know and you can experience that just like he requires of a lot of us in groaning, that we have to avoid cynicism and all the things, he requires tons more in us hoping. It's unbelievable how much. What he is saying is to Terrence and to Joel and to Howard, as they're picking out coffins probably today or tomorrow, trust in the resurrection. Trust that I will raise her from, raise her from the dead. What he is saying to them is that the ultimate reality is not the groaning of this dead body, but the life everlasting that she has when I come in her return. The earth will give way, and she will be glorified. He asks them not to hope and feeling okay right now and to be comforted, but actually being able to hug her neck one day and kiss her face that is no longer discolored and rub her hair that is fully there and that she in return though she missed it this time could rub her three boys heads fully embodied and fully restored because of Jesus and his resurrection they will do that very thing and they will worship with her for all eternity, in spirit and in body, resurrected from the dead. Let's pray. Jesus, King of all, you who rose from the dead, You who applies Easter to our hearts, to our souls, and our bodies. You who we can say it is not that it is just well with our soul, but with our bodies in the cosmos one day. You who will bring your entire church, your entire church to yourself and restore us and restore us into the new heavens and the earth. Oh, Jesus, our King, our suffering Savior, the strong one. Be with us now. Give us the tinges of hope amidst our groaning give our brother our brothers all the four brown boys and their families give them the gift of groaning with hope we know that we they none of us can muster it holy spirit convince us of the heart of the gospel that you will raise us from the dead we ask in your name amen